0: Live from Southern California,
1: this is the Jim Rome Show.
0: The Yankees went into Game 3 of the ALDS with all the momentum last night. They had hung four runs on the Boston bullpen in Game 1. They beat David Price around in Game 2. And when Aaron Judge walked out of Fenway with Frank Sinatra blaring on his Bluetooth speaker, even though the series was tied at a game apiece, the Bombers seemed to have the socks on the ropes. And then last night happened. Brock dunking on all of the Big Apple's head with absolute savagery like this.
1: First ball swinging Brock Holt, a base hit. Two on for Holt. And a line drive, fair ball into the corner it goes. More runs are coming in for Boston. Pierce tried to score from first. He is in. On his way to third is Holt. It's a two RBI triple. Can you believe this? 10-0 Boston. That was driven into right center field. Brock Holt. And on the chase, that is going to bounce up and out. Have a night, Brock Holt. That ball's ripped down the right field line. That is a fair ball home run. And the cycle for Brock Holt. He hits for the cycle in a postseason game. History for Brock Holt.
0: Check out Mr. Brocktober. Getting about 40 seconds of jungle time. Video. CBS Sports Network. But he was hardly the Yankees' only problem, especially when Nate Avaldi was on the bump pumping absolute gas. Check out what this dude was doing on the radar gun. In the first inning alone, 99-mile-an-hour four-seamer to Andrew McCutcheon to start that game, triple digits three times to Aaron Judge, and then a nice, easy 99 to Barry Luke Voigt. A game after the Yankees buried David Price before he could get out of the second. The guy who spent nearly two years on the shelf with arm trouble after two years in pinstripes went right back to his old house and he set that thing on fire. Seven innings allowed just five hits, one run, no walks, five Ks and a ridiculous 17 swinging strikes. The Red Sox basically pulled this dude out of Tampa for nothing at all. And Alex Cora did not pull this dude off the Yanks until half the stadium was empty and Boston was running relay races around the base pass. What an absolute bleep show for New York. And it started pregame, right? It started when it looked like Luis Severino didn't know what time the actual game started. I mean, there's no showing for a game, and then there's literally... No showing for a game. Dude got to the bullpen a reported eight minutes before the first pitch. And TBS cameras actually caught pitching coach Larry Rothschild reminding Severino what time the game started. Yeah, I know. I know. Severino denied that he was rushed. He said that he went through his normal warm-up routine and that he didn't get knocked around until the third inning. But what kind of a circus is going on behind the scenes when your ace and your pitching coach are talking about what time the first pitch is instead of what pitch sequence you're going to attack the Red Sox lineup with. And there's something else that's crystal clear. The Sox answered the freaking bell. There was nobody scared in that clubhouse. And my man Alex Cora was leading from the front. And he came up absolutely brass when his team had to have it. Remember, for instance, when Joe Madden analytics his way out of October last week when he made a handful of questionable decisions because the numbers said so yeah well Cora did the opposite Cora relied on his gut and his instinct and he jumped Ivaldi in the rotation and gave him the game three start and that paid off he also rolled the dice and he went with Mr. Brocktober at second base even though he had been owned by Severino and then he basically turned this series on its head because he managed. He did not get lost in the data. He actually managed and led from the front. So that leaves the Yanks at the brink. And now they're going to send 38-year-old warhorse CC Sabathia to the bump with the season on the line tonight. We'll see if the Yankees can peel themselves off the mat quickly enough to send this thing back to Boston after the Red Sox laid a felonious beating. On the Bombers in their house. First pitch, scheduled for 8.07 Eastern. Give yourself plenty of time to get loose, big man. 8.07 Eastern. Write that down. Make sure everybody knows when the game starts. 8.07 Eastern. And by everybody, I mean the Yankees. one 800 636 -86 86. There's getting beat, and then there's getting beaten down. And I've got more to say about that, too. Talk about having yourself a night. Talk about Mr. October having yourself a night. How about the umpiring crew having a night? And one guy in particular. And by the way, if you're an umpire and we know your name, that's not good. We should never know your name. My guest is Spencer Paysinger. Spencer, good morning. Good great, doing, great to have you on. Thanks for having me. How you doing, bud? Thanks for having me. Good to have you. Listen, there is so much to cover with your story, but your journey in the last couple of years is pretty fascinating. Let me set the stage properly, though. As you've said, you grew up roughly two blocks from where Boys in the Hood was filmed. So let me start right there. What was life like for you growing up?
2: Uh, You know, growing up in South Central, you know, you didn't know what you didn't have until you saw people that had it. Um, So that just kind of paints the picture of the TV show where, you know, being from South Central, you know, everybody came from the same economic background. You, you knew what you had, you knew what you didn't have. And then, you know, going to Beverly Hills High, that was just, uh, you know, the stark reality of sort of where I was in the world.
0: Yeah, I'm going to talk about that, too. So you grew up in South Central. You went to Beverly Hills High. But one of the things that you said about growing up is you learned how to change the path and not worry about what you didn't have, but to focus on what you did have in the moment. And you started that thought. What did you mean by that? And then how did you learn that skill?
2: Well, I mean, being you know, being from South Central and having, you know, great parents and great family influences, we always made do what we had. We didn't worry about what we didn't have because at the end of the day it wasn't an option. So to me, that's just the makeup of the people that live in South Central, the culture that's over here and you know, just having the opportunity the opportunity to go to Beverly Hills High you know, again, it's just making the, making the best of the opportunity you have.
0: Spencer Pacing was my guest. You know, so your father was a football coach and your mother works for the police department. What did you learn from them growing up?
2: Uh, just diligence. Just, you know, putting your head down and, and getting to work and, you know, allowing your work to speak for itself. You know, I'm, This is sort of, a, you know, uncharted territory for me a little bit. I like to be in the backgrounds of things. So to be on, you know, on your show and just be in the spotlight for, you know, the few minutes that I have is, is amazing.
0: Spencer Pacing is my guest. Well, there's a reason for it, too. So, let me fast forward for one moment, and then we'll circle back. You played your college ball at Oregon, so coming up the way you did in South Central, what was that experience like for you, Eugene?
2: Oh, I loved it. I love Eugene with all my heart. I'm actually going up there in a couple of weeks to see uh, Chip Kelly come back for Oregon's homecoming. Uh, but just, you know, my experience for Oregon was amazing. We had, you know, a great run there. I came the time just before Marcus Mariota and his, his rise to fame, but you know, I feel like we played some good ball those years, you know, ultimately losing the national championship to Auburn, but we had some some great wins and some great memories along the
0: way. My guest is Spencer Paysinger. He's got a new show out that we'll talk about in a minute. So you go undrafted in 2011, but then you sign with the New York Giants. So you go from being undrafted to walking into a locker room with guys like Justin Tuck, OC Minyora, JPP. What was it like to work alongside and play those or with those guys?
2: Oh, it was amazing. I actually, my locker was right next to OCU Minyora, and Just the amount of wisdom that he poured into me, you know, the seasons that we overlapped with each other, you know, I still hold some of those lessons near and dear to my heart today. I still talk to Justin Tuck and guys like Chase Blackburn um, all the time. And it's just a testament to that locker room and the leadership that came with it. And, you know, that's the real reason why we had the, the season that we had back in 2011
0: all right so the team goes nine and seven during the regular season and then you go on to win a Super Bowl so when you look back on that season and on that team what sticks out to you the most
2: I, I truly feel like we you know we had a, a storybook season where we started off hot I believe we were six and two and then it ended up going into a you know we call it a no-win november I think we lost about five of the next six games and by week 13 14 we had to scratch and claw just to even get into the playoffs but Again, just relying on those, you know, the leaders of the locker room, the intro roles, those uh human yours, Deion Grants, Justin Tuck, uh, even Chase Blackburn, those guys really pulled us together and said, doesn't matter what the coaches are calling, what they ask us to do, as long as we trust each other, you know, we'll be all right.
0: We're talking to Spencer Paysinger. All right, so in the interest of time, I can kind of speed up your career. You were with the Giants for four years, and then with the Dolphins, and then Carolina last season. When you got to the end of last season, what were you thinking about your future in terms of football? Well, so
2: I believe it was two days before uh, New Year's, and I got released by the Panthers because they had to activate a defense alignment that was serving as suspension. And I got back to Los Angeles, and I looked at my wife and said, you know what? You know, I'm I'm good. I'm I'm done playing. We had on good accord that the show would at least get to a to a pilot testing, and I was ready just to pour them all into making the TV show what it is today. And I think I made the right decision. Anytime I don't have to hit anybody, I think it's a good day.
0: <laughs> right. If you're looking for something to do this weekend, get to Vivid Seats. Any ticket, any event, the world is your freaking oyster. With Vivid Seats, a brand new sponsor here, you can attend the concert, the show, or sporting event of your choice and do so at a great price. Here's what I like about Vivid Seats. It is the top source for tickets for all the live events that you want to go to and you can sort by price or look for the seats in the section and the row of your choice. And to make it even better, Vivid Seats is reaching out to you new customers and will give you a promo code, which will give you 10% off your first ticket order so you can save even more money. So what you want to do is go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Vivid Seats app. First-time customers can enter the promo code RPO and receive 10% off your order. Once again, enter the promo code RPO and get 10% off your order. Every single purchase is backed by a 100% buyer guarantee. From the biggest concerts and games to the hottest theater and more, Vivid Seats has it all. Make sure you download that app and enter the promo code RPO. Get 10% off your first order on Vivid Seats. Make a memory that lasts a lifetime. Let Vivid Seats help you get to your favorite live event. Vivid Seats. This is a great company with an awesome proposition. Check it out yourself. Vivid Seats. All right. so in terms of the show itself, to fully understand this, we've got to circle all the way back to high school. Again, you're from South Central, but you went to Beverly Hills High School, and the story behind that and your family's history at Beverly Hills High is pretty amazing. How did this come to be?
2: Yeah, so about my fourth or fifth year in the league, I started writing some of my own scripted content. I just love storytelling, and a good friend of mine took notice and mentioned that he should connect me to one of his colleagues. So in that uh, meeting, I realized that, well, we realized that we played at Rival High schools. himself being at Peninsula High School and myself at Beverly. And at the time, he sold in the unscripted space. So he just asked me how was it growing up in Beverly Hills, and I corrected him and said, oh, you know, I would ever there. And he thought that was a compelling story and asked me to write up something that could speak to that experience and potentially can get a meeting with, you know, Uh, a couple producers so I ended up doing that and uh, my first meeting was with the Warner Brothers with Greg Berlanti's team just told them a few stories of being in Beverly Hills as a teenager and also being in South Central during that time and they loved it Uh, we went into contract negotiations right after that and that's why I had on good accord to walk away from the league
0: Spencer are joining us. So now you're dealing with some really heavy hitters in the content world and on the other side. How did you end up at Beverly Hills High School, and what other family members went there?
2: So my uncle and my dad, all my uncles and my dad went there back in uh, the 1970s. They were actually part of the second wave of, of students to integrate Beverly Hills High School. They since had come back to, to coach and to be teachers back in the 80s. So around the time my older brother went there and myself... Uh, They were head coaches, defensive coordinators, and teachers at the school. Um, So it was through the multicultural program where the program is now non-existent, but it allowed upwards of, I believe, 30 students from different areas of Los Angeles to attend Beverly Hills High School. So that's how I was able to go to the school.
0: Spencer, I got to know, what was that like? What was it like to grow up in South Central the way you did and then to commute and go to Beverly Hills High School every day? What was the experience like for you?
2: It was definitely, you know, a fish out of water story. Um, For me, just walking down those halls and seeing just the manicure lawns, you know, the kids with the the $100,000 cars as their, you know, their birthday gifts. You know, I'm hoping just to get a, a $10 bill and a birthday card for my birthday. But, you know, it's just, you know, understanding that they grew up differently. They had a different upbringing. But at the end of the day, you know, we were all essentially just kids trying to figure out our way.
0: I mean, isn't that the case, right? I've got a junior in high school right now, and that's what the kids are doing. They're all trying to figure out their way. So, were you embraced? Were you accepted? What was it like? Was it hard to fit in, or not so hard?
2: Yeah, there was some trial and error along the way. Uh, definitely some hiccups. I lost friends on, you know, on both sides of the track. But I feel like, you know, sports in general, football being the main catalyst, it actually helped me to, you know, gain those friends and to build those lifelong friendships. Because, you know, we both know when it comes to football, you have to trust a man to the right and to the left of you.
0: Spencer are joining us. All right, so I mentioned off the very top that you're an executive consultant for All American on the CW, but the truth is, and we're talking about this now, you're more than that. The series, in fact, is based on your life in high school at Beverly Hills, and you laid the story out, but when it first came to you and somebody else thought your life would make a great TV show, did that seem pretty natural, or did that seem kind of surreal to you? They want to make a TV show about my life.
2: (laughs) It was it was definitely surreal because, you know, a lot of people have since asked me, you know, how do I feel about this? Do I ever think that a TV show would be made off my life? And I always tell them, no, I was too busy living my life to, to understand that it could have potentially been a story. So... The fact that you know C.W. and Warner Brothers felt compelled to make this a story and allow me in on the process to, to help out where I can has been a true blessing.
0: You know, it seems to me a lot of athletes, and I know this to be true, I talk to them, a lot of them are not ready when the time comes and they've got to make that transition. And they don't make the transition easily. And in fact, a lot of them never make it whatsoever. You seem to have done this pretty easily so far. You've gone from one of the toughest businesses on earth, the NFL, to another incredibly tough business, the entertainment business. How have you gone about making that transition? The way you have as seamlessly if you have, as you have so far?
2: Well, I, you know, I just attribute it to the, the mentors that I've had along the way. You know, that being my my family being a big part of that, a uh, mentor as well at Oregon, uh, James Harris, most, no, most notably. And even during my time with the Giants, you know, guys like Richard Schwabacher, who's one of the heads of our Quest Diagnostics, doing an internship with them a few years ago. It's just, you know, I've always wanted to use football just sort of as an incubator to to the rest of my life. I never thought of it as a career. I always thought of it as a job. And for me, I only wanted to play football until I turned 30 and then to walk away and, and pursue other things because I just never really wanted to be considered just a football player. I feel like there's just there's way more to life.
0: So why was 30 the age? Why was that the time? Why did you know that then, that, I mean, a lot of other guys, you got to rip the jersey right off their back. Why was that the age when you wanted to walk away?
2: Well, I mean, whether we like it or not, athletes tend to deteriorate around when they turn 30, especially in football, just the, the pounding is, you know, unimaginable. So I just, you know, as a 22-year-old rookie, I told myself, if I can play until I'm 30, I'm going to walk away. And it's just saying, you know, I'm young enough to play this sport. I'm young enough to take a hits, You know, why not dedicate my 20s to, to doing that? But I just saw 30 as a transitioning in my life to be able to, to go on to, um, to
0: better things. All-American premieres tomorrow at 9 p.m. on The CW. So what's it like when you see your life story playing out on TV? We talked about that, but how about seeing billboards promoting your story? Is there any way to put into words what that feels like?
2: It's—I'm still trying to understand. Uh, it, it's such a, a blessing, such a crazy feeling, all wrapped into one. You know, I was actually—I wanted to like climb up on a billboard one night, but my wife told me not to. But <laughs> like just seeing—you know—seeing the billboards, seeing—you know—they're popping up everywhere. I've had friends from Oregon and and the places that I played me pictures of billboards in their respective cities and it's 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 amazing i i'm I'm, like i said i'm still trying to understand it because it's still such a new experience even though we've been creating this project for the past two years that i'm just excited for everybody to finally see the story we're telling
0: you know you grew up in south central and then you go to beverly hills that means you were in two of the most iconic communities Anywhere, Not just Los Angeles, but really in the world. So how would you describe the two communities in terms of similarities and differences? Are there any similarities between South Central and Beverly Hills?
2: Now, you know, when it comes to just, you know, the affluence and the differences in terms of wealth, yes, there are some differences. But for the most part, the, the people are, you know, somewhat the same. They're just trying to figure out who they are, uh, like I mentioned before. And, you know, just going through the same emotions and, and you know, understanding where they fit in this world. Now, South Central, the one thing that I love about, you know, telling this story, especially at this time, is I feel like South Central hasn't really been portrayed in a positive light in the past couple of years. And I'm just happy that my story can help, you know, shed light down into in South Central in the media.
0: All right, so that show premieres tomorrow night. One last thought. You had a great tweet yesterday, quote, Giants paying Odell 95 M's and expect him not to speak his mind. LOL, 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 pay me that much, and I'm in all the GM meetings, overseeing the treatment room, and going to scout the combine, won't have me wasting away my prime in silence. Listen, you know, people get pretty worked up about comments that players make. People in the media get pretty worked up about that. My question to you, how does something like that, what he said, play in the locker room? How does something like what Odell said about Eli actually play in the locker room?
2: You know, after after playing with Odell his rookie year and, and training with him since, you know, this is a guy that he'll give you the shirt off his back if he had the opportunity to and if you were in need. Like, he's somebody that, as great as he is, he's still such a nice, humble guy. And I know a lot of people, you know, think I'm lying when I say that to try to, to, try to protect him, but that's truly how I feel about him. And, you know, the Giants, they invested, you know, so much money into him that he should have a say-so on how things are ran there. You know, it, not necessarily you know, telling the locker room how we should be, how they should behave. But for the most part, you know, he's the future of that franchise. And as, as much as we want to, you know, shy away from the fact, you know, the time for, you know, Eli and some of the older guys on the team is coming to an end. And I truly think as great as Eli is, I'm not taking anything away from him. I'm not trying to insult him at all. The guy got me a Super Bowl ring. So he'll always be, you know, my favorite quarterback, but you know, you got to look to the future. That's, you know, that's, the job of GMs, that's the job of the front office, is to always maximize your team and to get them in a competitive advantage. So it's it's unfortunate that Odell's sort of taking the, the grunt force of this. Yes, he, he could have chose his words better, but he's, he's just trying to be the catalyst for change in that locker room, and, and I think he's on the right track.
0: No matter how big or small your team is, Ferguson has a winning game plan for pro contractors with thousands of plumbing repair parts, knowledgeable associates, and the largest national footprint in the game. When the pressure is on, count on Ferguson. Drew Brees is very good at football. Yeah, I said it. I'll say it again. Drew Brees is very good at football. Man, damn, that felt good. It felt incredible to get that off my chest. Man, that's so liberating. Yeah, not that we needed any reminder, but if for some reason we did, he gave it to you in the form of a 43-19 beatdown of the Redskins with the entire nation and all of his peers watching. And speaking of his peers, for all the talk of Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Aaron Rodgers, and they do deserve all the love they get, all the respect they get. Drew Brees is putting together one of the greatest careers in NFL history, and this guy's done it in an amazing way. Look, I'm not at all surprised by any of this, but I am amazed. I'm amazed. Not surprised, but amazed. I mean, honestly, I can't even begin to describe how impressed I am with everything this guy's done everything I've ever seen from Drew Brees. He is the consummate professional, the ultimate pros pro, a guy who's had a really tough road, but handled it better than anybody could have ever expected. And if you don't believe me about this guy's professionalism, check out Dante Star Wars Twitter feed from last night. He's got this amazing story there that is way too long for me to share here, but it's worth the read. Go look for that. It's also a reminder that if we go back a few years Nobody wanted Drew Brees. Nobody wanted this guy, and nobody wanted that injured shoulder. You know, Nick Saban, the smartest guy ever? Nick Saban and Miami went with Dante Culpepper over Drew Brees. And that was the second time that the Dolphins passed on him. According to the Miami Herald, they could have taken him in the 2001 draft, but they didn't think that he was much of an upgrade over Jay Fiedler thinking that Ryan Leaf would have a better career than Peyton Manning coming out of college. Can't believe how whack that take is. I wonder what anybody who had anything to do with thinking that Drew Brees would not be an upgrade over Jay Feeler? Must have thought as they were watching Drew Brees do this last night.
1: First down and 10, shotgun snap, drops back, looks long, far side, he's got a wide open receiver. It's caught at the 35, breaking the tackle, 30 from the 20 down the sideline, the 10, the five, and it's a touchdown for Traquan Smith. Over the shoulder catch, 62 yards, and the record! Breeze has done it with a standing ovation from over 74,000. The time is 8.34, central time at the Superdome in New Orleans. And Drew Breeze has just become professional football's all-time leading passer on a touchdown pass of over 60 yards, 62 to be exact. He's just gone by Peyton Manning. And Breeze is more passing yards than any quarterback in pro football history.
0: Thanks to my pals at Westwood One, there is your new career passing record holder, Drew Christopher Breeze. You know, the guy who was barely an upgrade over Jay Fiedler and not nearly as good as Dante Culpepper. He is now your all-time passing champ. Listen, drafting isn't an inexact science. We all know that. Every front office is going to have an ugly miss that they'd like to have back. But Fiedler v. Breeze is right up there with Sam Bowie and 45. Nothing against Jay Fiedler. But Drew Breeze, they didn't consider that an upgrade. (laughs) I love the way he did it too last night. There were a lot of ways that record could have been broken, but no better way than with a 62-yard TD pass, airing it out. That felt so much better. That felt so much more appropriate than swinging one out in the flat, going dink and dunk to get it. And it had to happen in New Orleans. Had to happen there because the relationship between that city and that player is really unique, really special. He was coming off a shoulder surgery. A quarterback coming off a shoulder surgery. New Orleans was a city coming off a horrific hurricane. And they both made a comeback. They both made that comeback together. A comeback for the ages. A comeback for the guy. A comeback for that town. All the way to a Super Bowl win. I mean, if you wrote that script in Hollywood... It would seem too Hollywood. Nobody would buy it because nobody would believe it. But you better believe that. And you better believe that the guy that he went by, Peyton Manning, dropped a video congratulating
3: Breeze.
4: Peyton, FYI, Drew Breeze just broke your record.
3: Uh, which one?
4: All-time passing yards.
3: Passing yards? Oh, okay. So I still have the touchdown record, right?
0: He's actually on pace to break that, too.
3: What? Great. Drew, for a thousand days, I've held the record for all time passing yards in the NFL. And I got to tell you, it's been the greatest a thousand days of my life. And thanks to you, that's over now, and you've ruined that for me. So thank you very much. I have nothing left to look forward to except slicing my tomatoes, making dinner for my family, putting together this wedge salad. Also, let this serve as the congratulations for the touchdown record, because as you can see, I'm very busy. I don't have time to keep doing these videos for you congratulating you. But in all seriousness, Drew, congratulations on this record. You've done it the right way. All your hard work and dedication have paid off. You and I have come a long way since this picture back in 2000 when you were in college and I was in my third year in the NFL, so Way to go. Proud of you. Good luck the rest of the way.
0: Thanks a lot, Flight Deck. Thanks for that video of you slicing tomatoes even more. And thanks for that picture of the two of you from back in the day. I mean, damn, that is some kind of transformation for both of you. And before any of you losers start, speaking of which, damn, Steve. Sorry that I had to set that up with before any of you losers start. I'm checking tweet deck as I'm talking about this, and there it is. Pops right up. Right on cue. I was just about to call out any of you losers who thought about doing this, and it's my man Stucknut, the first one through. He tweets, nobody cares about Drew Brees and his stupid overrated record. Signed Cal Ripken.
4: ...about uh, Cal Ripken and his uh, stupid, overrated record. Cal Ripken sucks. He's overrated. He was overpaid. He did nothing good. He's average player at best who had a crappy record because he didn't play that hard. And so everybody thinks he's so great. Wow, he played a bunch of games in a row. Good job there, tough guy. I would pay a million dollars just so I can spray that guy in the face of a full mace spray.
0: Any one of those lines would have been one of the worst lines in the history of the show uttered by anybody. And he just went like, check, 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 check. Stupid record. Check. Overrated. Check. Overpaid. Check. I mean, literally the worst take ever. So I knew that was coming. So before any of you losers start raining on this parade with your genius, it's only a matter of time before this record gets broken, so we don't even need to celebrate it. Let me just stop. It's a horrible take. Right up there with that loser who hated Cal Ripken, who said that he'd pay a million bucks to spray a can of mace into his face. Brad in Detroit was that guy, actually. No, you should celebrate that record. Check the numbers. Breeze will crack 80K before he hangs it up. Maybe even 85K. You want to run that down, you better have 16 or 17 seasons of 5,000 yards. There aren't too many guys who have done that. In fact, only four guys have done that. And they've only done it once each. Breeze has done it five times. So yes, I get that there are a lot of passing records that have been falling lately. A bunch more are going to fall in the future as offenses open up and the rules continue to change to benefit the offense. But can we take a minute and celebrate this guy? Can we take a minute and celebrate the guy who did it? Because nobody has done it better and more professionally than Drew Breeze. Celebrate the guy in the moment because nobody wanted that guy. Nobody wanted that guy, but nobody wanted it worse or was willing to pay a greater price than Breeze. And I say this not for effect, and this is not hyperbole. This guy is as professional an athlete as I have ever come across. The ultimate pro, period. Mike McIntyre is my guest. Mike, nice to have you back. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great, Jim. Thanks for having me on. Good to visit with you again, Mike. So you beat Arizona State 28-21 Saturday. Let's talk about that for a minute, if you don't mind. The game went back and forth. They took the lead. You would tie it. They took it back. You tied it again. They take it back, and then you tied it again. Ultimately, you finish. What does a game like that then say about the mental toughness of your squad?
4: I think it says a lot about the mental toughness of our squad. You know, they're they're a very good football team. They've got a a couple of great playmakers play and Benjamin and Harry outside and the quarterback, Manny's played a lot of football and um, the way our kids kept fighting. And, you know, that last 10 minutes of the game um, was a spectacular part of the football game. We stopped them down on the goal line stand and we got it back. They stopped us. We stopped and then we kept the ball for seven minutes and finished the game out. I, said, I thought that showed a lot of mental toughness and physical toughness at the same time.
0: Colorado head coach Mike McIntyre, my guest. And when you mention spectacular, LaVisca Chenault Jr., 13 catches, 127 yards, two touchdowns, and two more rushing TDs in the win over Arizona State. He's had a touchdown in every game this season and four games with double-digit receptions, triple-digit yardage. When you have a weapon like that, what's it like to be able to use him all over the field and just turn him loose and let him do what he does?
4: Well, uh, Coach Cheverini and Coach Adams have done a great job uh, utilizing all of Viscas' talents. And, you know, the young man is uh, able to handle us moving him around everywhere. Um, he's an exceptional athlete. But the greatest thing about Visca is he's an extremely humble young man. So he'll do anything we ask. Um, the players love him. He's a huge part of our team, of course. Um, but he's also a um, a guy that uh, we, we can move around everywhere. It's hard for defenses to key on him. And he can make plays. He, he you know He's built like a tailback, um, runs like a receiver, and has soft hands like an excellent receiver. So he, he can do a lot of different things.
0: Well, and can I tell you, for those who don't know, he also squats with the offensive lineman. I mean, this guy oh, yeah. has amazing speed. He's so athletic, Mike, and he's so strong. You know, you touched on something else. For those who do not know him or his story, the young man – Lost his father. He was tragically killed in a roadside accident when Visca was just ten. I know you touched on this, but what's he like as a person and a teammate?
4: He is. He is. He's really refreshing. You know, he was a big time recruit out of high school that was extremely humble. We've got him here, and um, you know, he played on special teams a little bit last year as a freshman, and this year's come on the scene. Um, You know, he's just a special guy. He's fun to be around. Um, He has a good sense of humor. Um, and I, I'm just um, so proud to be able to coach him. But at the same time, he's even a better kid. He really is.
0: Mike McIntyre is my guest. You know, it's not just about him, though. You've got quarterback Steven Montez is having a big year as well. In fact, what's been the biggest change or the biggest area of growth for him from last season to this season?
4: I think it's the same kind of the same way it is with a lot of quarterbacks. Extremely talented Um, could do a lot of stuff with his talent. And then he caught up with the game mentally. It wasn't, he's extremely bright. It was just the study habits and understanding it. And he's had so many reps now, um, in game reps, he sees things. And, uh, coach Kurt Roper, our quarterback coach has done a tremendous job with him. Um, as far as understanding where the, the blitzers are coming from, understanding safety rotation. Um, and then also the thing that he had a hard time with early in his career, is he so athletic that he could always escape the pocket and make plays. And in major college football, it's a little bit harder to do. Now he's staying in the pocket, stepping up, making throws. And we do let him escape um, and do some things like that because and, and, we want to take away his creativ- creativeness. But um, he's able to do that more, and our offense is running so much much, sm- much smoother.
0: Colorado 5-0 and right now. USC is coming up next. You mentioned Kurt Roper. Now, Kurt Roper, yep. like you, is from the David Cutcliffe coaching tree. Yes. Cutcliffe is one of my favorite guys to talk to in college football. So what have you learned from him that you apply now as a coach and as a leader?
4: <laughs> we don't have long enough on the show, Jim, for <laughs> right? me to tell you all the things I learned from David Cutcliffe. Uh, number one, he's my main mentor, And and he's also a very close friend. Uh, I've learned a tremendous amount from him. If you came and saw our program and saw his programs, there'd be a lot of similarities. Uh, And then having Kurt, Kurt and I have coached together now three different places, and having Kurt here and his understanding of fundamentals, understanding of coaching quarterbacks and offense has really helped us. And uh, kind of like having a, uh, we've got kind of two pieces of Coach Cutcliffe here because we both cut our teeth on him young and uh, were able to work for him a couple different times. So uh, Coach Cut's amazing. I think he's the best football coach in college football. Uh, I know I'm biased, but I definitely think he is.
0: Mm. Colorado Buffalo's head coach, Mike McIntyre, joining us once again. You had that huge year in 2016. Last season did not go quite the way you would have liked. So where was this team and the program from an emotional and psychological standpoint heading heading into this season?
4: Well, we learned a lot from the year before. We lost a lot of close games in uh, 17. Um, we didn't take things. We didn't this team learned how to not take things for granted. They're extremely close. This is the closest football team. I've um, been the head coach a part of, um, the brotherhood, the, they, you know, there's, I love all my teams. There are just some you like a little bit more. I really like this team. I like hanging out around them. I like hearing them talk. I like hearing them um, mess with each other. And when the game's going on, um, you know, you always hear this cliche, you know, that guy didn't blink or that team didn't blink. This team doesn't blink. They just keep playing. And they always believe they're going to win, um, and uh, that's a credit to our leadership. That's a credit to our quarterback. Um, that's a credit to our coaching staff, our strength staff. Everybody's kind of instilled that in them, and everybody likes each other. So um, when they show up every day for practice and and meetings, and when we go on road trips, um, they're a lot of fun to be around. They're 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 focused, but they're loose. Um, it's an interesting con. That's what you always want, but you don't always get it.
0: We're talking to Mike McIntyre. You know, Mike, that point about never blinking, you, you mentioned it. I was going to ask you can you teach that? Can you develop that? Or can you only recruit that? If you want a team that doesn't blink, how do you go about developing that or do you recruit it?
4: Well, I, I, I'm going to. It's a combination of both. Number one, you've got to have the talent and they've got to have confidence, but it's got to be confidence, this inward confidence, not. A cocky confidence and then you can teach it the way you prepare your team you know to, to be a close team you got to spend time with each other and that doesn't mean just practice in meetings that means away from here so we cultivated a lot of different things that we did um to develop that and i definitely think that it made our team closer um they care about each other um they're very unselfish which is hard in today's world to be unselfish it's always been hard but it's a little bit harder Um, In today's time to be unselfish, and that's a a key ingredient to this team.
0: All right, so you mentioned this is one of your favorite teams. I know you can't play favorites on the team, but earlier this season, you did go into Lincoln. You beat Nebraska in their house. Not only did you do that in their house, but your son, Jay, had eight receptions, two TDs. What was that game like for you as a head coach and a father?
4: Uh, It was really exciting. Uh, Number one at Colorado, you know, Colorado State and Nebraska are the two biggest rivals, and we hadn't played Nebraska in a long time, and that used to be the big eight, huge rival, as, as the country knows. And so we, we played those both teams back-to-back, so it was an emotional too. Um, and after we won the game, you know, I watched the game, and I see Jay just like a player. Um, then on Sundays I come in and watch the game on my own and kind of cheer for him as a dad. Um, and uh, But that day he had all those plays, and as soon as the game was over, um, I was hugging some guys, and then I saw him and hugged him, and it was an emotional time. And I turned around, and the TV cameras were right there, and I and I said what I said that day was, and I still believe it. Just, it was a phenomenal day. I I got to coach a team and beat Nebraska, our biggest rival, it was exciting, and a comeback win. And I got to watch my son have an unbelievable game and score two touchdowns like a father. So. I'd say it was a pretty emotional, exciting day. It's got to be amazing.
0: I'm curious, Mike, how you approach that. As an example, I used to work in the family business before I got into this. And I remember yep. I went to work and I hit my dad, who owned the company. I hit him up with, hey, dad. He's like, no, nah, you you know, you don't, don't pops me here. You know, you can call me by my first name. So I thought that was pretty funny. So I started to hit him with Jay everywhere. And he's like, come yeah. on, man, stop doing that. But I would imagine it's got to be the same way, right? I mean, at, at work or at school, are you coach? I mean, you can't be dad. You can't be pops. You got to be coach, right?
4: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely coach on the field and and uh, different things there. I let the other coaches, Coach Cheverini coach him at wide receivers. Um, you know, I correct the guys and correct him just like I would any other um, but, uh, there, you know, I have to take time. We kind of do a thing where, um, a couple days a week, he'll come up to my office when I have a downtime, shut the door and I say, okay, I'm dad, your son, what's going on with you? You know, cause he needs that. I need that. And then, um, and the way I do the games is during the game, there's, there's really no difference. Um, but I do come in on Sundays and take a few minutes to go back and watch his plays and kind of enjoy it as a dad. Cause you only get that experience so long and they're, they're through, you know, they're grown up, they're moved on. And uh, I don't want to miss out the part of being a dad, but the coaching part while he's here is the most important when we're playing and coaching and on the field.
0: So when the LA Dodgers made that deal for Manny Machado, it felt like a classic case of the rich getting richer. You take a team that was already good, and now you add another all-star, a masher. That's fair. At that point, anyone who complained about that deal didn't really care about the fact that the Dodgers were banged up, and they did need this guy. That wasn't just a case of, he's there, we can do it, so let's do it. They needed his bat, and they needed his glove. But those same people who got so bent were celebrating when Manny was not exactly Manny for the first few months of that time in L.A. This guy had gone from absolutely raking in Baltimore, averaged by 42 points, his OPS by more than 100 points. And then he continued to struggle in the NLDS and all the haters were having the best time ever. A field day. This guy was one for 12 with seven strikeouts going into yesterday's game and everybody clowned him and the Dodgers. You know, the fact that the Dodgers are where they are without getting anything at all from Machado tells you about their depth, tells you how dangerous they are because it's only a matter of time before this guy gets going. But... If they're going to get where they need to go, they do need this guy to step up. They can get this far without him, but they can't get where they need to go without him doing something. And he did yesterday. The guy finally did show up in a huge way, starting with that first at bat in the first with Max Muncy on base.
1: Dodgers get to play throughout October. Watch the numbers change for Manny Machado. That's hit hard by a diving Camargo and into the left field corner. Muncy's on his horse. He'll head for the plate. And Manny Machado with a two-out RBI double. The Dodgers lead it
0: 1-0. FS1 with that. Muncy on his horse. Muncy is a horse. Of course, that guy was on base. And that's how he started off. If you're a Dodger fan, you're starting to think, man, that's the kind of thing that's going to get that guy going. Maybe that breaks him out. Maybe that's what will bring back the guy that we made that deal for. There's no way Manny Machado just forgot how to hit. It's a matter of this guy getting back into a groove. Maybe that at bat is the first one. Maybe that's the thing that gets him going. Only one way to find out, right? Machado coming to the plate in the seventh with a couple of guys on.
1: On another one, two from Sabatka. He gets a fastball and yanks it in the air deep down the left field line. It's gone! Manny Machado breaks it open with a three-run shot.
0: Welcome to Los Angeles, Manny. And not a moment too soon. And now it's official. Turned a 3-2 Dodger lead into a 6-2 Dodger lead. Nice knowing you, ATL. Thanks for coming. That's the old Manny. That's the Manny who just turns on stuff. And when he turns on stuff, he sends it very far. That was 109 on the gun on the way out, and it felt a hell of a lot faster than that, didn't it? Truth is, this guy had four lasers in the game, each one 104 miles per hour or better. The four hardest hit balls of the game were all off Machado's bat. And he was quick to remind everybody, quote, I've been locked in all series. The results haven't shown, but you try to stick with the same approach and not try to change anything. I think you put yourself in bad situations when you try to change. Today, I was just able to make hard contact and not miss two balls that were a big key to our win today. End quote. Respect. That's the mark of a pro. It would be so easy to start gripping, to panic, to try to shake things up, to try to do something different. But from the sounds of it, this guy trusted the process. And the process paid off with huge results when they mattered most. And it set off this high-pitched celebration in their clubhouse.
1: Oh, no, no, no. Hey, it's simple. Three, more, three words. Eight more wins. Let's go. That's
0: it. Go. Dave Roberts. hit hate to quote myself. Man, I hate quoting myself. I hate quoting myself, but the fact is I really have not been giving myself enough credit lately. I'm pretty damn sure that I sat right here behind this very mic and looked into these same cameras last Thursday and said that the NLDS was not coming back to L.A. and that the Dodgers were too much for the Braves and that Doc Roberts set this whole thing up perfectly and pushed all the right buttons with his rotation. I'm pretty sure I said all that, and I'm pretty sure it was all correct. Although I hate to quote myself, and I really hate giving myself credit, But the fact is, the NLDS is over, and even though Atlanta got a game at home, this thing was never close, never in question, that's a crew that knows what it's doing when it comes to champagne celebrations, and they got after it in a big way last night, like I said they would. But again, notice what Dave Roberts said. He said it before the party, he said the same thing after every player, or that every player was saying after the game, eight more wins. But if Machado is finally hitting like this, and that bullpen is picking them up the way it did last night, and guys like David Freese are chipping in, those eight more wins are feeling a hell of a lot more realistic. This might be the year they finish. They have to. They have to. Anything short of them winning it all is going to cost somebody their gig. Somebody. Fair or not. Jim Trotter is my guest. Jim, good morning. Good to have you back. How are you? Romy, how you doing, man? Good, good. Jim, how about you? How are things? No complaints whatsoever, man. Life is good. Good, good to hear it. All right, so you're a San Diego legend. So, what was your reaction, Jim, when you saw Drew Brees break the all-time passing record last night?
5: Oh, at the risk of submitting my man card, I got a little misty eye when I saw him with his kids and whatnot. Um, I thought it was an incredible moment, and um, it couldn't have happened to a better guy.
0: You know, I always go back to this story. Drew Brees. Back that was me. Totally me. Lost that connection. Jim, I was saying I've never done that before. I literally just hung up on you when I hit the wrong button and I've never done that. So my apologies to you. You had a great story locked and loaded about Drew Brees. Hit me with that. Uh, no, Romeo, it was just uh, two things here. One,
5: Number one, he he may be the most unique athlete I've ever covered in terms of his singular focus and and being great. Um I remember after he had the bad season in 03 and they make the deal to get Phillip Rivers. And covering the team at that time, I knew I was going to have to ask him about it. So I go down to the facility. He's in the parking lot on the other side of the fence. He knows what the the drill is. says, Meet me inside. So I meet him inside. And I said, Hey, you know, I got to ask you about them going out and getting Phillip. He says, I'm telling you this right now. This is my team. We're going to the playoffs and I'm going to the Pro Bowl. Now, mind you, they hadn't had a winning season, I think, in like seven years and he had just been benched the previous year. Well, long story short, they um, have a winning season. They go to the playoffs and he makes the Pro Bowl. So when the announcement was made, I went to him in the locker room. I said, hey, remember that conversation we had? He said, yeah. I said, you know, I thought you were delusional, right? And he looks at me and he smiles and he goes, I know. And that's just who he is. The more you tell him he can't do something, the more he's going to do it. He just has this singular focus to be great. And what he told his little boys after that game was so true. You know, if you work hard and you commit to something, anything is possible. And, and that's what he lives his life by.
0: Jim Trotter joining us. You know, watching that game last night, Jim, I, I tweeted something. I could never tell that story like that. But I did tweet that this guy is the ultimate pro, period. And that's what I meant. I've never seen a guy... Who is more of a professional athlete, more committed, more dedicated, and lots of guys are, but he truly is singularly focused and the consummate pro. Let me ask you this for those who do not remember, what was the thought about Drew Brees around the league before he signed with the Saints?
5: That he might never play again. Remember, he was coming off that shoulder injury. Uh, he got hurt in the last game, his last game with the Chargers, in a meaningless game, diving for a loose ball. And I think it was John Lynch that landed on him. And, and basically, as it has been explained to me, if the labrum is a clock, his labrum was torn all the way around to 11 o'clock. Hmm. And so there was doubt that he would ever play again by some people. It's one of the reasons the Dolphins decided not to go forward when he was a free agent. And the Saints placed the faith in him and, and signed him, and they placed the faith in him, in, in part because, let's be honest here, they didn't have anyone else. They were coming off Katrina and and what were they going to do? So they almost took a blind leap of faith that he was going to be OK. And it turns out that he was. And he's gone on to have this this Hall of Fame career. But again, I just I, I just couldn't have been more happy for him. And, and so to see him on the sideline with his kids and his wife, you know, the, the people who mean the most to him um, and, and to deliver the message that he did to them, it, it's just like I said, at the risk of turning my man card, I, I, I got a little misty I'd watching it. I thought it was phenomenal, just a, an ultimate moment for him.
0: Jim Trotter, my guest. Well, he's 39 now, but he's on pace for another 5,000-yard passing season, which he does with regularity. Nobody else in history has done that more than once. He does it pretty frequently. How much longer can you see him playing?
5: Uh, boy, in today's game, Jim, where quarterbacks don't get hit, and and the rules are set up for offenses to do well and knowing the way that he commits himself to his conditioning and his mental preparation and all that i would say continue to play as long as he wants i don't know that he will i i think i think he probably look let me say this if they were to win the super bowl this year would i be surprised if he walked away after that not one bit at all i, I think that drew understands his place in history i think he understands what his accomplishments are and and doing the walk-off is, is, is something that I think a lot of players dream about. So that wouldn't surprise me at all. But how long could he play? As long as he wants at this point. He's got a head coach whose system and, and schemes he, he attuned with. There's talent there offensively for him to continue to do what he does. And again, with the way that the, the rules have been set up now,
0: uh, I could see him playing again as long as he wants. Jim Trotter joins us. Jim, in sad news, the Chargers announced this morning the passing of Alex Spanos. How are you going to remember him?
5: For me, it's more. I, I don't think football. I, I think family. Um, this is a man who who absolutely loved and adored his family. Um, when I got when I started covering the charges in '96, he had already relinquished day to day control of his club uh, a couple of years earlier. But you know, I had 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 dealings with him and whatnot because you know he's from Stockton. He was born in Stockton, uh, lives there. I went to high school in Stockton, in fact, went to high school right across the street from his home. So he always felt that that there was this connection there. And um, I just remember every time he would talk about his kids or his grandkids or any time he was around them, those were the things that were most important to him. And, you know, I know a lot of people are going to focus on the fact that that during the time that he was running the club, the day to day operations for a decade, they only had one winning season in a non-strike year during that time. But the reality also is he's the guy that brought in Bobby Bethard and, and Bobby Ross, and and they're the ones who took this franchise to its only Super Bowl appearance ever. So you can remember the negative, but but that was one of the positives. So I, I, I just think of a man who loved his family, um, who was committed to his family, very energetic, passionate, um, loyal. If you have time, I, I can give you a quick story about sure. that, that sure. passion. So sure. He, uh, it, it's I think it's 2000s it's or whatever, but anyway, he had gone to the owner's meetings and he had made a statement about the Chargers needing a new state, stadium after the city had committed money to renovate Qualcomm Stadium. So our columnist at the time, I'm at the San Diego Union-Tribune, Nick Canepa, writes a column, and, and he's critical of Alex for that. Well, the day the column comes out, we're all at the facility for the draft, and um, we're all hanging out in the lobby, and Mike Riley's there and whatnot. And Alex appears on the landing up above, and he sees Nick, and he, and he yells out to I shouldn't say yell, but very loudly says, asshole, and he turns around and walks back in. Well, I'm the beat writer, so I've got to report it, and I do. And the next day I show up before anyone gets there, and all of a sudden the security guard comes and says, the owner wants to see you, takes me upstairs to the office. And, I mean, he just he goes off on, on me, he gives it to me, you know, lets me have it. I let him say what he has to say, and I told him. I said, you know, Mr. Spanos, I understand. I said, but look, if you had said that to Nick in private, that's between you and Nick. I said, but you said it in a public setting. I have to report it. And he went on to say how he was disappointed in me because he's from Stockton, and I had gone to high school in Stockton and, and the like, but it showed me that, that that's how he thinks in terms of, of loyalty. And because he had even said to me, it's almost like, you know, you're part of the family, so to speak. And um, and I, I'll never forget that, because I, I could see in his eyes that he was genuinely hurt by that. Because in his eyes, because I had gone to high school in Stockton, he thought I was part of the family, you know, the extended family, so to speak. But that's kind of who he was. He, he was a guy that loyalty meant everything to him, family meant everything to him, and he was a guy you always knew where you stood, whether it was good, bad, or indifferent. He was going to let you know what he was thinking and how he felt. As and, a- you know... That was my experience with it.
0: That, that's a great story, Jim. <laughs> that is something else. Jim Trotter joining us. That really is a tremendous story. All right, I'm glad you shared that. Thanks for that. Listen, you were in Cleveland on Sunday for the Browns and their win over Baltimore. What did Baker Mayfield show you and how he handled a nasty, nasty Ravens defense?
5: Oh, a lot. I, I mean, look, you know, we know victories only count for one game in the in, in, in the standings, but, but to the to the Browns, that game counted for more than one victory because you have to understand it wasn't – it's easy – you know, Lorenz O'Neill used to always say this to me, it's easy to be a soldier when there's no war. Well, it's easy to, to, to not get a true judge of what you have when things are easy, when you're going up and down the field and your uniform's clean and nobody's hitting you. But now you're in a game where you're playing, you know, the 2nd rank defense, um, a defense that had dominated rookie quarterbacks over the last ten years – And there's adversity and everything else, and you keep finding a way to make a play to make it happen and whatnot. And so when I talked to, you know, Hugh Jackson and some of his teammates after, you know, that's what they talked about. This was a kid who didn't flinch, who didn't blink, was unfazed, and just kept finding ways to make a play. Because think about it, Jim. You've got a a second and 21 from your five yard line late in, in, in an overtime game. And yet you find a way to scramble for 13, and then with a rush in your face, you use your left arm to create space and throw back across your body and end up getting a long gainer that sets up the winning field goal ultimately. Um, that's just kind of who Baker Mayfield is, and, and there's a different energy when he's on the field, and those guys believe it. And they believe they learn more about themselves facing that type of adversity and overcoming it as opposed to, say, winning a game 21 nothing or something like that.
0: I think this guy's amazing. I'm blown away by this guy. And I saw what he did in college. I know his background. I know his story. I know he plays as well as he's played on the big stage. I'm amazed at the impact he's had on that team. And Jim, it's not only just his teammates and the coach, even Eric Weddle, a guy that you know very well, a guy I know pretty well. Eric Weddle went out of his way to find Mayfield after that game to praise him. What's it say when a guy like that goes that far out of his way to say that to Baker Mayfield?
5: Well, I'm with you, and I went and sought Eric out to ask him about that, and and he looked at me and kind of smiled. He goes, hey, I've done it before. This is just the first time you've noticed it. Mm. And I said, okay. But then I said, so what did you think? And then that's when he told me, he said, look, I respect the game. And he said, I respect good players, And, and he made some good plays against us. He said he also made some plays we didn't capitalize on, but he respects Baker Mayfield's game, and a lot of guys do. And I'll tell you a quick story, too, about his leadership. They're in Oakland the week before, and things aren't going well early. You remember he threw a pick six. And so Todd Haley, the offensive coordinator, is getting on Jarvis Landry about, hey, you're my veteran. You need to get these guys right, yada, yada, yada. And Baker walks over, and Baker says, shut up, you know, as if I've got this. And Todd Haley looks at him, and Todd doesn't like it. He loved it. And he told me, he said, this was this young guy taking control of the situation, taking control of that offense. And that's who Baker is. You know, he has already earned that kind of respect from his coaches and his players that they view him, even as a guy who's only five games into his career, as a guy who is now the leader of that offense, if not the leader of that team.
0: Jim Trotter, storyteller, joining us. Jim, for those who follow you, I'm going off the board now. Those who follow you on Twitter know that you have an amazing dog and Hi. know that she just suffered her second, second ACL injury. How is she doing right now? And what is the rehab process like?
5: I appreciate you, Romy. It, it's, it's tough, man. We're actually uh, going to see the surgeon today for follow-up visit. We're 10 days out. Um, what happened, she tore her first one and she had surgery in June. And they tell you at the time when you tear one, there's a very high probability you're gonna tear the other. So I tried to be really um, diligent and, and, and slow with the rehab process, not take any chances. And she loves the ocean. We hadn't been there four months, so I took her back, and what happens? One of the one of the currents gets her, and she tears the other ACL. Oh. So, it's a two to three month rehab process. Um, we're in it, and the, the most frustrating part is for her is that when you have an active dog, you know they want to get out and get going, and they think they're healthy, and you've got to try and and slow them down, which either means, as, as the, the vets will tell you, you have to give them some sedatives or you know, make sure you keep them in a confined space, and, and my dog's just not used to being confined, so it's tough, but we'll get through it. I appreciate you asking.
0: Absolutely, Jim. I, I know how that goes. I mean, if, if you're an animal lover, I know you are. We are. I've talked about the horse that we lost, but we, we've had dogs. We've had cats, man. It's terrible. It's heartbreaking, but the spirit in the animal is so amazing, right? They just keep coming. They keep coming.
5: It's incredible. Like she, she, she's like my shadow. Wherever I go, she goes. Even, you know, my wife always says to me, "Have you ever had a woman chase you like this before?" I'm like, <laughs> "No, I haven't." So I said, "I don't know that I want another one to do it." So, but um, wherever I move, she moves. And and um, man, Jim, you know, this being an animal lover, it's just it's it's a it's an unconditional love, man. And. and um I don't even know how to put it in the words. I just know, you know, when you're away from them, you miss them. And when you get home, you can't get enough of them. So I just want to get her healthy and be able to get back out in the water. And and um, now we don't have to worry about ACLs anymore. So it's all good.
0: Good, man. Those who know, know. Jim Trotter, reporter, storyteller for NFL Media, a Hall of Fame voter. And again, if you have not picked up his book, you should. Junior Seau, the life and death of a football icon. Good friend of the program. Jim, so good to have you on. Always great talking to you. You know I appreciate you very much. No, brother, I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Good brother, Romy.
3: Carl Anderson here headed to uh, WWE SmackDown in Indianapolis. Just wanted to say what's up, man. Good brother, Romy.
1: Big LG here at Luke Gallo's WWE. Just want to thank you guys in the jungle for the karma last night. Big W at WWE Louisville. We appreciate it, and that deserves a just too, too sweet. sweet.
3: Jungle karma's real, good brother. Jungle karma's real.
5: Taste you love.